Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome, friends, to Heart to Heart with Anna. This is your host, Anna Jaworski, and I'm very excited about today's show, Snowflakes, How Each Heart is Unique. This is the seventh episode of Season 1, and this show originally aired on December 24, 2013. Today's guests are Heart Mom Christy Pena with Crusade for Christopher, Dr. Gerald Marks with Boston Children's Hospital, and Cynthia Weston, who's a nurse with the UT Health Science Center in San Antonio. And we will talk about how each heart is unique, what current tests are done to identify heart defects, and how to help our children born with congenital heart defects to survive and thrive. Now, let's enjoy today's show, and remember, my friends, you are not alone. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to the seventh episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. Today's episode is called Snowflakes, How Each Heart is Unique. The heart is an extremely complicated organ. The muscle on one side of the heart is different from the muscle on the other side of the heart. There are valves that open and close, allowing blood to travel to different parts of the heart, to the body, and or to the lungs. The heart has its own unique electrical system, structures inside the heart that separate different chambers from one another. In babies with congenital heart defects, something goes wrong, and there are a lot of places where something can go wrong. The American Heart Association, or AHA, used to state on their website that there were 35 different kinds of heart defects. Today, December 2013, they state the word congenital means existing at birth. The terms congenital heart defect and congenital heart disease are often used to mean the same thing, but defect is more accurate. The heart ailment is a defect or abnormality, not a disease. A defect results when the heart or blood vessels near the heart don't develop normally before birth. The AHA now has on their website 17 heart defects that they elaborate upon, some with simple diagrams to help illustrate what the heart defects look like. They don't include the most common heart defect in their list, bicuspid aortic valve, nor do they include problems with the heart beating too fast or too slowly or being in complete heart block, nor do they discuss some of the genetic conditions which might lead to heart defects like Down syndrome, Long QT syndrome, or 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. The AHA doesn't really mention how each heart is unique and that many hearts, like my son's heart, have a combination of some of the heart defects the AHA mentions and others that are not on that list. 
the AHA, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the March of Dimes, and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute have websites with very limited information about the different kinds of heart defects babies might be born with. One thing all of these entities agree upon is that heart defects are the number one birth defect and that they affect over a million people in the United States alone. Some of the types of heart defects are mentioned. Some of the possible causes are mentioned, but no one seems to be talking about how every heart, just like every snowflake, is unique, which is why our topic today, Snowflake, How Each Heart is Unique, is so important. To discuss this topic, our guests today are Christy Pena, Dr. Gerald Marks, and nurse practitioner Cindy Weston. Christy Pena is currently a stay-at-home mom and caregiver to her youngest son, Christopher. He was born in heart failure and given less than six months to live. He lived under hospice for 15 months until the discovery of a miraculous improvement. He has continued to do well despite the odds. Volunteers for Barth Syndrome Foundation, the Children's Miracle Network, Hospital Blair E. Batson Hospital for Children, and several other various causes. She helps new families by sharing her knowledge and resources and advocacy. She has written for Complex Child e-magazine and guest blogged. She has met with various politicians advocating for congenital heart defects and rare disease. Christie's family makes various appearances for Children's Heart Network, Children's Miracle Network, traveling to Orlando and Washington, D.C. They've also been in countless news articles sharing their incredible story. We'll meet Dr. Gerald Marks, a cardiologist with Boston Children's Hospital, and Cindy Weston, a nurse at University Hospital in San Antonio, later in our show. Thank you, Christy, for being on the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Anna. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you. I want you to tell us all about Christopher and how his heart defects came to be identified. Yes, that's an interesting question. We anticipated nothing but a healthy child, and when he was born, we were totally taken off guard that he was found to have a congenital heart defect. We never expected that we would be stepping into this world. He looked perfect to us, even though the doctors told us that he was really sick. Ultimately, the pulse oximetry test caught the congenital heart defect, showing that his O2 levels were down, and it alerted the doctors to look further. His father and I, we saw nothing but a perfect child. He was just beautiful. But in retrospect, we looked back at the pictures and saw a very dusky child, and we remember that the first thing that we saw was that he struggled to eat. So that was our first indicator. Mm -hmm. We live in Jackson, Mississippi, actually, right here at the Blair e. Batson Hospital for Children. We're very lucky. I could drive to the Children's Hospital within 10 minutes. He was actually born wow. at a smaller hospital, and he had to be transferred to the larger hospital when they realized how serious his heart defect was. No one thinks of rare diseases or heart defects affecting them, but it can happen to anybody. And mm -hmm. cardiomyopathy was his initial diagnosis. It was actually a symptom of something much larger. Right. But you said that it was the pulse oximetry, and for our listeners who may not know, that's a very simple, non-invasive test that some states now are requiring by law. That's why I was wondering what state you're in. I just did an episode on Cora's law, and that's what that whole law is about, is trying to get pulse oximetry for newborns so they don't go home with their heart defects undiagnosed. And so what this simple test does is it measures the amount of oxygen that's going throughout the body so they can determine if there's a problem or not. And so when your baby had pulse oximetry, you're saying that the numbers were low enough that it alerted the doctors and the nurses that something could be wrong. That's correct. Is that right? We're actually quite lucky because right now in our state, the legislation hasn't passed, although we've been in the works. And Christine McCormick and Cora has been a very big inspiration. And, and also the fact that my child looking so perfect to me, 
that could have very well been our story. We're trying really hard to try to make that happen for Mississippi as well as the states surrounding us that have already adopted that law. I'm very excited just to see how much progress we've made in that because five years ago there were no states practicing pulse oximetry. And so now we have, what, 20 states, 17? I think we have 17 that haven't. I think all of the other states are in one degree or another of accepting that as protocol. And I'm very excited about that. Texas is one of the ones that has, and I went to the state to advocate for that, and I'm very excited to see that that is something that Texan babies can anticipate, is having that simple test. If my baby would have had that test, he wouldn't have gone home undiagnosed. We would have known that something was wrong, and he wouldn't have gone into congestive heart failure. But it sounds like this test was a lifesaver for you, but initially they diagnosed Christopher with cardiomyopathy, and then they discovered something else. Can you tell us what other tests they ran on him and how his heart defect was ultimately diagnosed? Sure. Well, after they found on the pulse oximetry test that his OT levels were too low, the next step cardiologists tend to do for any person that needs to have their heart looked at, they use a test called the echocardiogram, and it's a lot like an ultrasound, and it just kind of takes a look inside of their heart. But I want to say, looking back on Christopher's story, initially they found his enlarged heart because his O2 levels were down, so they x-rayed his lungs to make sure that they were actually completely developed. And when they did that x-ray, mm-hmm. they found his enlarged heart, which alerted them to look even okay. further. Wow. So he had a lot of tests in, but he was lucky. They started with the non-invasive stuff, and they were able to detect it with that pretty much. And so they went and did the echo. What did the echo show them? Actually... His clinical diagnosis is cardiomyopathy, and the type of cardiomyopathy he has, well, cardiomyopathy in infants, nobody thinks of that. It's pretty much a rare thing that you think of. Cardiomyopathy tends, you hear about that in adults. Well, in Christopher's case, he Mm -hmm. also not only had cardiomyopathy, but he also had a new form that doctors weren't familiar with that had not heard of it, and it's called left ventricular noncompaction. And the easiest way for me to describe to people what that means is just think of your hand as a baby's heart. And when you open the fingers up, you can picture them as this is the baby's muscle. And as the baby forms and grows, those fingers close and they form that tight muscle. Well, in Christopher's case, or others that have the left ventricular noncompaction, those muscles never form. It makes it insufficient for the blood to be able to pump correctly Mm -hmm. through the body. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you can totally relate to our theme today, how each heart is unique, because that sounds like something very special and very rare. Absolutely. He's very rare. I'll have to say we feel very rare. We're the only ones here in the state with the type of congenital heart defect he has. But through networking, we've been able to connect with other people that are like us. So that's been extremely right. an extreme blessing for us. Yeah. So tell me why you started working with the Barth Syndrome Foundation and the Children's Miracle Network. The Children's Miracle Network They're part of the hospital that we go to to receive all of our treatment. So that cause is really close to our heart, of course. And then with the Barth Syndrome Foundation, when the geneticist called us with our diagnosis of Barth Syndrome, his advice was the best he could have possibly given me. He said, I don't know much about the disease. This foundation is who you need to contact. And so Mm -hmm. from that day forward, they have been the most amazing support group. What they've taught me is that the research scientists have gained insight on the behavior of common diseases that all of us have been touched by, like cancer, diabetes, and Alzheimer's. They've taught me to learn how to advocate for my child. Mm-hmm. People reading about Barth syndrome, they would picture a child who is gravely ill 
when you look at these boys, they're deceptively healthy. And you can actually go to the Bar Syndrome website at the Meet the Boys section and see Christopher and all the other healthy and beautiful-looking boys and men with Bar Syndrome. They teach us so much about the way the disease behaves. They connect us. We have a global connection with all the people, even though there's less than 200 affected families in the world, we've been united through this foundation. They've been amazing. They have funded all of this research that has benefited, like I said, all of these common diseases. But in addition to that, for my child, they're actually on the brink of a treatment for Bar syndrome. There's no cure. There currently is no treatment, but they're about to start a clinical trial, which has given us all a lot of hope these boys because a couple of decades ago, it didn't have a name until 1996. But when you heard of this disease, it was 100% fatal before the age of three. They were going to wow. die if they had it. Wow. Whereas now, we're encountering men who are living on. They're marrying. They're having children. I want to say the oldest one that we know of is 67 years old. So wow. this foundation has given us And so when was that hope. person diagnosed? But you just said that before 1996, or there was no name for it. It was it was just described. It was described with all the mm-hmm. typical characteristics like cardiomyopathy and neutropenia. And what Barth syndrome is is it's an error in one of the genes, and it causes all the cells in the body to not work correctly. It makes it where the energy that our bodies need, they don't have it, and so it affects everything in their body from their heart to their blood system. They have neutropenia, which is a neutrophil deficiency, which is what we all use to fight bacteria and infection. It causes them to be very weak. It just causes a multitude of symptoms, and it's a horrible disease if you look at it on paper, but if you encounter one of these boys, they're going to inspire you and give you hope and know that the disease is a horrible thing, but that is not them. That does not define them. Absolutely. I mean, and your son is definitely a beautiful testament to the fact that science is starting to learn more about these heart defects and starting to be able to treat them. Like you said, there's no cure yet, but at least they're able to give them more time. And who knows, with that extra time, they may just find a cure. So what advice can you give parents who are just now learning how to cope with their children's unique hearts or like in your Um, case, your child's birth syndrome? In my case, I think the the very first thing that helped us cope, my husband and myself, the number one thing was we had faith and we gave our hope to the Lord and asked for him to help us with our strength because as I was talking with my husband earlier today, that strength could only come from God. But secondly, but not as important because I think that that's the most important thing, but almost as important is participating, getting out there, sharing your story, helping educate and inspire others, you're making a difference just by sharing your story because every life is important. And even though Christopher's rare, they're networking, we don't feel isolated. You know, we have, again, the global community for support and information. It's a really important thing to do that, to find other people like you so you can get involved, you can get informed because the congenital heart defect world and the rare disease world, this is a war we're fighting. And having a diagnosis, it gives us a weapon to help us to fight It makes the fight more fair, and it empowers us to help our child and others. Empowering yourself and and teaching yourself to advocate for your child, I cannot stress enough that that is the most important thing that you can do for your child, and to have confidence and know that you are your child's advocate and you have the right to speak up for them and say, this is my child and I care about them. And don't question the doctors, but also ask, be involved, 
ask why. It's okay to ask why because it's important that you understand what's going on with your child because without that, you can't advocate. Absolutely. Couldn't say it better myself. You did a great job, Christy, and thank you so much for sharing Christopher's story. And you have a beautiful Facebook page for Christopher, and you're doing a fabulous job of being a great advocate and sharing Christopher's story with the community. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and your advice with us. Now, unfortunately, I have to go to a commercial break, but don't leave yet. Coming up, we have one of the top cardiologists in the country who is going to help us understand why each heart is unique and what doctors are trying to do to really identify why hearts develop in such unusual ways. Find out what new tests are available to help doctors and who needs those tests when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with parents, Christy Pena, cardiologist, Dr. Gerald Marks, and nurse practitioner, Cindy Weston. We just finished talking with Christy Pena about her son, Christopher, his unique heart, and how parents can empower themselves by learning about their children's heart defects and how parents can help their children to understand about their heart defects themselves. Now we will turn our attention to Dr. Gerald Marks. Dr. Marks is a cardiologist at Boston Children's Hospital and is internationally recognized for his contributions to patient care and medical education. A devoted physician, he cares for children with the most complicated heart defects. He is the author of over 180 peer-reviewed publications, chapters of books, reviews, and editorials. As a teacher, he has lectured nationally and internationally and has taught generations of cardiology fellows the art and science of echocardiography. Dr. Marks is especially renowned as a pioneer in 3D imaging of congenital heart defects. Dr. Marks has also been a tireless volunteer for the American Heart Association, or AHA. The AHA has given him the Paul Dudley White Award at the 2012 Boston Heart Ball. That's named in honor of one of Boston's most revered cardiologists and a founding father of the American Heart Association. 
It is the most prestigious tribute given by the AHA's Founders Affiliate and is bestowed annually on a Massachusetts medical volunteer. I also just found out that he was named the Doctor of the Year for 2013. So congratulations, Dr. Marks. Thank you very much, Anna. I'm so proud to be talking to you. It's exciting. And we will be meeting Nurse Practitioner Cindy Weston in our next segment. So, Dr. Marks, maybe you can give us a little bit more information on some of the non-invasive methods that doctors use to help us understand some of the heart defects our children are born with. Well, yeah, it's a very important question that you're asking, and I think it's been some of the great advances in the care of our children born with congenital heart defects. Probably the singular most important, I think, non-invasive test is the echocardiogram. Many of you know it as the term ultrasound, but this is an ultrasound specifically of the heart. And basically, it uses the transmission of sound waves. So the instrument sends out sound waves. It hits the heart and great vessels in the blood. Those sound waves are transmitted back to the transducer or the probe, and then the ultrasound machine creates an image of the heart and its ability to measure the flow of the blood in the heart and its great vessels. So it's termed uh, non-invasive because it really does not cause pain or discomfort, and it has no known harmful effects. And in fact, we use the echocardiogram to examine the fetal heart as early as 16 to 18 weeks of pregnancy, even up to the adult with congenital heart defects. This test allows us to see the anatomic details of the most complex forms of congenital heart defects, but also allows us to see the size and function of the heart and great blood vessels. And additionally, we can see the direction and the speed and even the amount of blood flow in the heart. And it really is a miraculous type of test. Yes, but, you know, when I started my fellowship, we didn't have the ability to do non-invasive imaging and to detect heart disease. It really had to be done in an invasive procedure, even in newborn infants. So you could imagine what a great advance it was to be able to make these detections even when the baby's first born. And certainly, Christy was giving us a very good example of how her baby was born and diagnosed as having a cardiomyopathy within the first hours of life. And that's the. Yeah, uh, that's just amazing. Yeah, it really is. And really, the beauty of the ultrasound machine equipment is that it can be taken anywhere. I mean, we can use it in the mm -hmm. clinic, in the fetal lab, as I mentioned. We oftentimes use it in the intensive care unit. And another major venue where we take the ultrasound machine is into the operating room, where when a patient first comes off bypass, we can look at the results of the surgery and give immediate feedback to the surgeon. So it's important, not only in its non-invasive characteristics, but in the ubiquitous manner in which it can be used. And because it's non-invasive, it's a test that you can do serially in the baby, infant, or child. For example, I often see a baby or a child every year, and I can do the ultrasound test on a yearly basis, and it gives me a great way to know how the cardiovascular effects of the baby or child or young adolescent are going. And so it's a great tool for the clinician. I do want to just take a few minutes and just talk about one other non-invasive test which has become very important, which a patient or parent may have actually had, and that's a magnetic resonance imaging study. And basically, mm -hmm. the patient is placed in a very large magnet, and the shifts in the magnetic fields cause the protons in the heart. And then I know you and I remember back to our science days, the protons are the positively charged parts of the atom, and it causes any event these positive charges to shift. 
And when they shift, it creates a beautiful, it can be through computer analysis, provides a very composite view of the heart and the great vessels and even the lung field. And both of these tests that normally take 35 to 45 minutes, but Again, they give just a wealth of information to help the cardiologist and the cardiovascular surgeon in knowing what are the best next steps to take. I noticed also that Christy mentioned another non-invasive procedure that my son had every year for a long time and sometimes multiple times, and that was the chest x-ray. I've noticed in the last five years or so, Alex isn't getting x-rays anymore. Is that because the echoes have improved so much? I love how they have the Doppler and they're able to read so much more with the Doppler also, but also the MRIs and CAT scans. Is that why they're not doing the x-rays as much anymore? You know, that's, a, again, a very insightful question. It used to be that before ultrasound and MRI became so advanced and so, again, useful, when a child came to clinic, he normally got an EKG, which measures the rhythm of the heart or how many times the heart is beating and in what pattern the heart is beating, but they'd also get a chest X-ray. But it was clearly shown in, actually, clinical research studies that, the echocardiogram provided much more valuable information than a chest x-ray would. For example, not only can you see the specific anatomic abnormalities, but it allows you to really directly measure the size of the heart and the volume of the heart and how well that heart is contracting or actually squeezing the blood out to the body. And it's a much more specific and sensitive test than a chest x-ray would be. Well, and can't you even with the ultrasound measure the width of the cardiac walls, which sometimes for our kids can get enlarged? Yes, exactly. So it not only measures the cavity of the heart, which is where the volume of blood is, but it measures, as you're saying, the mass of the heart or the wall thickness of the heart. And that's critically important to having an understanding not only of specific defects such as cardiomyopathies, which is what Christy was talking about in her son's case, but it also allows you to measure how well the heart is functioning, even if there's not a cardiomyopathy, but a heart defect mm -hmm. itself. I know my son had to be put on digoxin as an infant because his heart tended to flutter instead of pumping efficiently, and the digoxin did help his heart to work a little bit better. No, you're absolutely right. So I'm sure right. That, that was one of the reasons why they were using the ultrasound on him. Yes, exactly. So, as mentioned, the ultrasound ability to non-invasively see how the heart is doing, and since it can be done on a serially basis, even in the young baby, you can look at the effects of a administration of a specific drug and see if it's beneficial mm -hmm. or not. Or you can look specifically at a surgery. Did the surgery meet its accomplished goals? And again, because it's non-invasive, because it can give you so much clinical information, it's really a an extraordinarily valuable tool. Well, I appreciate you explaining four different types of non-invasive procedures that doctors can use to help them identify the children's unique hearts. Can you tell us about some of the invasive procedures that doctors use? I sure can. Again, the great advances of medicine have even changed how we use invasive tools. Probably the most common one in congenital heart defects is the cardiac catheterization. And basically, that's a procedure that I think many of you are aware of, but where you take long, thin plastic tubes and you place them through the vessels, like the vessel in the arm or leg, and then you can feed them up into the heart itself. 
And with the catheter in the heart, you can directly measure the pressures in the heart. And these pressures in the heart can be extraordinarily important information to guide, you know, both medical and surgical therapy. And the echocardiogram gives us a lot of important information, but it can't give us the pressures in the heart. So it gives us extraordinarily important information. But I'd have to say, Anna, that today the, probably the most important part of a cardiac catheterization is what's called the uh, interventional catheterization. So especially mm-hmm. in congenital heart disease, there may be a hole there that you want to close. Or maybe there's times when you need to have a hole and you can create a hole. Or if there's an obstruction, you can open up the obstruction, either with a balloon catheter where you dilate the obstruction, or you can put like a metal thin wire, like sort of a tube called a stent and keep that narrowing open. And probably I think the most exciting newest advance is now we can place valves the cardiac valves, which before you could Mm -hmm. only be able to replace in the heart by open-heart surgery, we can now place those into the heart in the catheterization laboratory without ever opening the chest or going on cardiopulmonary bypass. So cardiac catheterization is probably still our mainstay of invasive procedures, but it's used for diagnostic, but again, importantly, for interventional purposes. I know this whole hybrid procedure for the cardiologist working with the surgeons is such an exciting area for me to see. My son's 19, and I've been watching this change and grow and bloom over time, and it really is exciting because if our kids don't have to go on bypass and they don't have to have their chest cracked open, that eliminates so many potentials for infection and really long recovery times. Isn't the Melody valve one of the valves that they can do actually with the catheterization? Yes, absolutely. We can place valves on the right side of the heart, the pulmonary valve, with great success now. And there's even use of placing valves on the left side of the heart in the aortic position, mostly in adults, but we've actually had a few select cases where we've placed it in young children. So I think the future for putting in valves is going to be extraordinarily important. And when I speak to parents today, I tell them, you know, we'll put in a certain valve now, but our hopes are that in the future, the valve can be put in in the catheterization laboratory. Well, it just gives me goosebumps hearing you say that because I have a son who has a leaky valve, and I know that someday that's probably going to need to be replaced, and I'm hoping that you're right. And this could be something that could be done in the catheterization lab instead of him having to have yet another open-heart surgery. Dr. Marks, thank you so much for sharing so much information with my listeners. And, wow, I I think we could do a whole episode just on the interventional strategies that are being used today in children. It's really quite remarkable, and I appreciate all the work that you've been doing to help children like mine. Oh, thank you very much, Anna, for having me on your program. Well, unfortunately, it's time for us to go to another break, but don't go far because we will soon have a nurse practitioner from San Antonio who's working to help empower parents who have children with complex congenital heart defects to create care teams and care plans to take care of each unique heart. So find out what this nurse feels is important and how parents can be better advocates for their children when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna. Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy. My father promised me a golden dress to twirl it. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go. 
whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. Heart to Heart with Michael, please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. by the Baby Blues Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patient. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home tonight forever. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. That's Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with parent Christy Pena, cardiologist. Dr. Gerald Marks, and nurse practitioner Cindy Weston. We've heard from Christy Pena about how she handled her son's unique heart and what she's doing to empower other parents. And we just talked with world-renowned pediatric cardiologist Dr. Gerald Marks of Boston Children's Hospital about the invasive and non-invasive tests that doctors are using to identify exactly what kind of heart defects each child has and how the doctors and parents can work together to help children with their congenital heart defects. Now we're about to meet a nurse practitioner who has devoted many years of her life to helping families of children with complex congenital heart defects to survive their open heart surgeries and prepare them to lead happy, quality lives. Cindy Weston began her nursing career in 1989 in a cardiovascular recovery room at St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital, Texas Heart Institute, in caring for infants, children, and adults after cardiac surgery and transplantation. She completed her master's degree in 1995 as a critical care clinical nurse specialist with a research focus on rewarming after cardiac surgery. In 1996, she received the Betty Baker Distinguished Professorship in Cardiovascular Nursing. In 2001, she obtained a post-master's family nurse practitioner certification and moved to San Antonio in 2011, where her career has come full circle by returning to the care of infants and children with congenital heart disease. Cindy Weston is a nurse practitioner with the Congenital Heart Program and has served as a nurse practitioner for their single ventricle clinic. She is completing her doctorate of nursing practice with a research focus in improving feeding and growth outcomes in infants with single ventricle physiology. And I happen to know Cindy Weston personally because she was one of my son's nurses when he just had his last open heart surgery. So welcome to the show, Cindy. Oh, thanks, Anna. You have an amazing son. <laughs> Oh, you're very sweet. Well, I am just fascinated by the project that you have chosen to do your doctorate of nursing practice program on. I am so thrilled that you're finding out what each child's unique heart needs and how, especially regarding feeding, we parents and professionals can work together. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, I'd love to, and I love your illustration of snowflakes because every heart is unique, just like every child. 
There are all sorts of categories of complex congenital heart disease, and within each category, there's really unique nuances for every individual child, so your title is so appropriate. The focus that I have is on feeding and nutrition, and with the various forms of complex congenital heart disease, many of these children struggle with eating and nutrition before surgery and even sometimes after surgery. Babies grow the most in that first year of life, and healthy nutrition is important for that growth. My project is on the single ventricle physiology or those infants that are born with one functioning ventricle. They're the most complex of all of our children with congenital heart disease and carry the highest mortality and the most challenges for surgical palliation. This physiology occurs because as the baby's growing in utero, there's either a ventricular inflow track or outflow track obstruction, and so that corresponding pumping chamber of the heart fails to fully develop. But 40 years ago, these children did not survive. But fortunately, with surgery advancement, and now we have three-staged palliative procedures that we perform with medical advancement, these children are living and surviving and thriving. But even now, the most vulnerable stage for them is from the first stage surgery to the second stage surgery, and that can carry a mortality up to 22%. Yeah, it's really scary. Speaking as the mother of a child who fits that description, he was so tiny. He was emaciated, and they called him failure to thrive, which just about broke my heart. Yeah. So tell us what we parents can do to get our children a little bit fatter, meatier, so they can <laughs> handle the next surgery. That's right. Well, feeding for an infant is exercise. And when we all exercise, which is something great for all of us to do, it requires physical endurance and coordination. And if you think Mm -hmm. of when you exercise your own heart, your breathing increases, your heart rate goes up. So imagine these challenges created on a baby born with congenital heart disease. They're trying to learn this complex coordination of suck, swallow, and breathe with a baseline altered circulation. But the focus of what I'm doing, my research is called translation science. It's taking the evidence that is out there and implementing it into practice for a sustainable program to improve outcomes. So Mm -hmm. I'm working on a standardized feeding approach, which actually came out of a collaborative initiative from the Joint Council on Congenital Heart Disease. This is a group made up of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and the Board of Pediatrics with their subgroups of cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery. They developed a quality initiative several years ago to look at building a sustainable network throughout the United States and North America to input data to see what could improve outcomes for this vulnerable population during the interstage from the first to second stage surgery. One of the things that they've determined from the data that we've all been putting in different congenital heart programs is that a standardized feeding approach did improve outcomes. They saw these improved outcomes Mm -hmm. with growth, and it didn't matter if you were a small center or a large center, some centers, it didn't matter about their size had improved outcomes. And when they started looking at the data, they found that all of those centers that had the best growth outcomes had a standardized approach. So what we have done in San Antonio is look at the evidence in the literature to see what are the elements of the best feeding protocol. We've developed our own and we're implementing that for this vulnerable population to improve their growth. You're doing an absolutely excellent job with that. I'm so excited to see what you're doing because even though each child's heart is unique and each child has unique needs, feeding is universal. 
<laughs> Absolutely. They have to be able to grow and gain weight because otherwise they have no reserves. And when they get sick, it hits them even harder. So what can we parents do to help our children with those complex congenital heart defects so they can survive? How can we work with your care team to help our children have the best odds for survival? Well, you're empowered as a parent, and my goal as a nurse practitioner and all nurses are to empower parents, and I loved hearing Christy refer to how she felt empowered, and she was taught to be an advocate for her child, and just to hear her story and her child's great outcomes, it excites and inspires me, but... We do this one way is through an interstage home monitoring program. So we begin education with the parents to understand the complexity of the disease that their child has, of the complexity of the circulation and what that means to them and how to do an assessment on their child. They know their child better than anyone. And so we teach them the signs to watch for and encourage them to have a short threshold to call the cardiology team if they identify anything concerning. We send them home with pulse oximeters so that they can monitor their child's oxygen saturations daily. We send them home with a scale so that they can weigh their child every day at the same time without a diaper on and they record those weights in a binder that we provide them and we teach them how much the child should be growing every day and give them a red flag that if they lose more than a certain amount of weight, generally 30 grams in a day, we want them to call We teach them how to do the math, even on calculating out those weights. We empower them that if they just see something unusual in their child, if they're not breathing right or if they're inconsolable and irritable and not themselves, to have a low threshold to call us so we can intervene early on these vulnerable children. I love that. I absolutely love that. And I felt that when we were there, even though Alice wasn't a baby anymore, he was a young adult, I felt that you all were there for him every step of the way. Thank you so much, Cindy, for being on the show and for sharing your expertise with us and especially for doing this really important project for your doctoral program. Oh, thank you for having me, Anna. Okay, well, it's time for another commercial break, but don't leave yet. We still have our miracle moment, and today's miracle moment comes from an amazing man who was born with a heart defect, but he didn't realize just quite how lucky he was until he started doing something that changed his perspective on his own life. Find out what he did when we return. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to 
Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. I want to take another moment to thank my awesome guests, Christy Pena, Dr. Gerald Marks, and Cindy Weston. It was such an honor to get to know each and every one of them, and I love how each of them are working so hard to strengthen our community and help us all feel more empowered with what we're doing every day. Now for our miracle moment. Today's miracle moment comes from the heart of a father. Max S. Gerber is one of the contributors to this special book. Due to time restrictions, I have had to take just excerpts from his story. If you'd like to read his entire essay, you can find it on page 232 in the book, The Heart of a Father, which is available at www.babyheartspress.com, amazon.com, or kidswithheart.org. Max wrote a wonderful essay entitled Broken Hearts Club. He writes, I take pictures of people for a living, and I spend a lot of time looking at people's faces, paying attention to their lives and their stories. I'm interested in the universality of the human experience. I grew up with a broken heart, born three months premature, with a heart rate half of what it should be. I didn't meet anyone else with a similar heart for 27 years when I started work on a book called My Heart Versus the Real World. In making the book, I spent almost five years following 10 families of kids who have congenital heart defects, talking to them, photographing them, and at the same time, paying closer attention to my own family and my own experience growing up with a heart defect. I created that book for the same reason a lot of you are reading this one. This collection of essays will hopefully foster a community of the brokenhearted, a broken hearts club, if you will. The most universal human desire is to feel like someone understands you, to feel like you're not alone, to feel like what you're thinking is shared by someone else. I certainly wanted to see myself in someone else. I wanted to know there were other people who grew up like me. Mostly, I wanted to make sure other people didn't have to wonder about these things and that they were not going through a singular, isolating experience. I got my first pacemaker when I was eight years old. Almost 30 years ago, this wasn't as simple and straightforward as it has now become. At the time, it was a major open-heart procedure to place the wires. This was before on-demand pacemakers, meaning my heart rate was set at 72 beats per minute. It never went up. It never went down. It was a model of stability during my teenage years. In school, I was more self-conscious about my condition than anyone else was. Frankly, looking back, I don't think most people noticed or cared. I was a skinny kid anyway, just like my father. I read a lot of books instead of running around. At worst, having a pacemaker just caused me to be more careful, more aware, more cautious in how I lived my life. I was never a reckless, headstrong teenager. Of course, the hardest and most important part about having a broken heart is figuring out how to get over it, how to move on. For most of us with literal broken hearts, the acute pain generally comes from some sort of surgery. You wake up from surgery and all you can wrap your head around is how much it hurts. You focus on trying to regain your appetite, trying to walk down the hall without collapsing. You realize that you need to let your pain be and you need to wait it out. You realize it will get better if you give it its due. It's so easy to get wrapped up in everything that surrounds a broken heart. It's easy to get lost in the medicine, the doctor's appointments, and worrying about missteps, problems, and accidents. It's easy to forget about living your life. It's sometimes difficult for parents to realize a broken heart doesn't have to be the entirety of their child's life. They don't have to define themselves by their condition. They don't have to feel isolated. Broken hearts can sometimes heal. That concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. I hope you'll come back next week when our show will be called Losing a Child to a Congenital Heart Defect. Until then, please find and like us on Facebook, check out our website, Heart to Heart with Anna, and remember, my friends, you are not alone.
Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week. We'll be right back.